And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're discussing the 1967 movie, The Dirty Dozen. A personal favorite of yours, I believe. Yes, it is. So, what is your relationship to this movie that makes it one of your favorites? Well... My dad was a huge movie buff, and uh, uh, I just remember as a kid watch, or him having me sit down and watch this movie with him. Um, we always, That's a little bit surprising, to be honest, because I don't really remember anybody talking about that side of him. Oh, well, I'm named after Dana Andrews. I know, but that's like the one thing that I know as far as like his movie-watching... Um, personality like well and your uh sister you know and that that thing but well uh, and i had a brother who died at birth whose name was kirk yeah for kirk douglas yep so yeah no i mean and it started from when he was a kid because i the stories were when he was a when he was young he and his uncles were all about the same age as he was um, used to walk the tracks in uh, Lancaster um, and pick up coal that had fallen off the rail cars. And for every bucket or a pail of coal they got, they got a dime. Well, a dime in 1947 um, could get you into the movies all all day. Um, and so you'd go in, you'd watch the newsreels, the shorts, which were like... Uh, Buck Rogers or the Three Stooges, and then you'd watch the cartoons, and then you'd have the first movie, and then the second movie was the was usually a cheaper version. Uh, it was a throw-in, uh, and that was the B movie, and that's why they call them B movie actors. They were actors who predominantly were in the lower budget films, um, and so that was the day the the point that. Um, it became very intricate, an intricate part of his life. He didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about films a lot, but he knew. Well, he didn't talk about anything. Well, he taught, he knew actors. He knew their names. He um, he knew what films they were. He knew what films were the good films and which ones were the bad films. And in those days, networks um, were scrambling always for tele or for content. So it was not unusual for ABC to have what they would call the Thursday night movie or the Tuesday night movie. And it would be a Hollywood uh, film that was about five or six years old. This is the pre-HBO era. And so um, that was the only way some of these movies were ever sh- you could ever see them is on TV like that. And so this is one that he had seen and uh, really loved and so he had me sit down and watch it with him and he would try and explain different things and and such so from a very young age i um i watched this film and i probably had seen it probably six or seven times by the time i was a teenager okay I suppose that make, that makes sense. By the way, just out of curiosity, when did HBO really kind of come around? HBO started in the late 70s on cable. Um, 
I got him to put in cable. Most of the people in Beloit, because Beloit uh, was one of the early cable cities, um, were having cable by the mid-70s. I got him to put in cable in the early 80s. And then while I was in college and I was living at home um, my last year of college, um, I agreed to pay for half of HBO Cinemax if he paid the other half. And so we got that at that point in time. But that had already been on for three, four years. I'd say 79, 80 is when HBO really came. And then Skin, or excuse me, Cinemax uh, came on <laughs> 82, 83, somewhere in there. Okay. And those, were, those were the Skinemax days. We don't need to make this any more of an explicit podcast than it already is. So, so okay. Uh, I was just kind of curious because I know, like, the the heyday of HBO is more modern than that. Like, they were showing movies and such, but uh, their uh, ability to produce original content and such didn't really start to happen until the mid to late nineties, and uh, with Correct. certain shows, but. Primarily right. movie channel. You know, and I remember being really small. I got into football at a ver- about age five, six. And, of course, being a historian, it wasn't enough for me to just study what was going on then. I had to study all about all the old players. And so I would read all these books that you could buy at the um, uh, grade school book count, like greatest NFL running backs, greatest NFL quarterbacks, uh, strange but true football stories, all these. Yes, so I, I remember because I read all of those books that you gave yep. me. And I and so I knew who Jim Brown was. And that's the part I remember that first time I watched the film, I'm cheering for Jim Brown to get out and he's shot and killed and I cried. Oh. Not, you know, a lot, but I teared up because I wanted Jim Brown to live. Well, he is still. So, yeah, there's something in that. So, um, uh, just to give everybody in the audience uh, some background, um, the basic plot summary as D Day approaches, Colonel Breed hands the roguish. Major Reisman, played by Lee Marvin, a important assignment. He must train a team of soldiers to parachute across enemy lines and assassinate German personnel at a French chateau. The soldiers, recruited from murderers, rapists, and criminals on death row, are promised commuted sentences. In spite of their history, the 12 men prove a spirited and courageous unit. Led by Major Reisman, they will exact revenge. Um, so basic, um, recognition of the movie, uh, this was nominated for best supporting actor for John Cassavetes, uh, film editing sound and one for best sound effects. Uh, it's also included on three different, uh, categorical AFI lists. So, uh, the next question we usually go to, um, what is this movie about? Okay. Is that something that I'm supposed to answer as well as everybody? Uh, This is one of those that started the whole movement of the anti-hero hero. hero. Um, I mean, the guys in this film are um, murderers, rapists, um, thieves. You know, they were in, you know, either long term in prison or on death row to be set to be hung. Um, and they end up becoming the heroes. And in fact, um, I just find it interesting that, uh, the two of the survivors were the regular army, uh, Lee Marvin, who himself has played the part of a guy who was an outcast and who, um, um, is looking for some level of redemption because of his rebel behavior. And then one of the guards, um, played by Richard Jekyll, who I think is a tremendous, um, or was a tremendous supporting actor. Um, you know, one of he these is guys extremely who, good in this movie. Yeah, he's. If you ever watch any of his films, 
He was extremely good in almost every movie he did. And he kind of made a name for himself late in his career. It was always like, oh, that guy. Um, you know, because you, I'd learned his name because I had watched this film so many times and I'd seen him in other films. And he was always so good at it. Um, unfortunately, uh, he got cancer and kind of languished or languished around and uh, was never really healthy enough to finish out his career in his 60s. Um, I think he passed like when he was 66 or 67 of cancer. But, um, you know, and it, 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 he was a very good actor. And so, of course, he's one of them who survives. And in part, the reason he volunteers is because he spent his whole year, year or period of the war guarding prisoners. You know, he didn't get to see anything of action. He didn't get to actually fight anybody. He just guarded prisoners. And so he volunteered to go with them and um, ended up becoming the uh, the 14th guy. So. Yep. Ultimately, what this is about is, is that it's a story of redemption. It's taking on un, uh, insurmountable odds in order to redeem yourself for past wrongs. It's almost it's almost Christ-like in its attitude. Is these guys were horrible people who are put on the cross and uh, most die, but they're redeemed and are in heaven as a result. Yeah, I mean, it, it's in very much the redemption of the irredeemable anti-establishment um, through putting them through essentially a suicide mission. You're going to drop them in behind. Uh, we may or may not catch up with you. Um, and your entire objective is to kill a bunch of military officers. You know, and the one guy of the out of the dozen who survives is Charles Bronson. And what was his crime? A guy, a guy was running, was fleeing from the fight, taking all their ammunition with them. And so he shot him so that he doesn't run off and leaves his unit desperate uh, and undefended. And that was his. So, of course, the one of the dirty dozen that's probably the most redeemable is the one who survives. I thought that was a little stereotype. Now I'm going back and thinking about it as a 56-year-old man. Um, I could... There are a couple of other ones that I think were a little closer, but, um, you know, it... it Given the fact that um, Bronson and Lee Marvin were the two major stars of this movie going in and were probably the headliners, it makes sense that both of them survived more from that aspect as opposed to any other. Yeah, I guess you you can say that, I guess. Um, you know, it's the old adage. What was it? I think John Wayne made like 57 films or something like that and only died in three I thought it was like six. Yeah, well, and I, I think we had this conversation at a bar like six years ago, uh, and some guy was talking about it. It's like Red River, the shoot. No, he does not. He does not die in Red River. Um, we had this debate, sure, and I'm pretty sure that it was on the list. Sands of Iwo Jima, he died in. He died in the shootest, but of course, he died of cancer. He didn't die of, by gunfire. Doesn't um, matter. He dies in the end of uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, and that counts. It's yeah. the central idea of like the entire action or the plot driving mechanism of the entire film. He was supposed to die in harm's way, um, and um, and um, uh, he dies in the Alamo. Yeah, in harm's way was uh, Otto Preminger. Preminger wanted him to die, and Wayne went over his head to the producers in the studio and said, John Wayne doesn't die. And so they had him come back without his leg. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, it's a reason why he's probably my grandfather's favorite actor. So Everybody else died. Burgess Meredith died. Kirk Douglas died. Everybody else died in harm's way. John Wayne comes back legless, but he's alive. <laughs> Okay, because that makes sense. <laughs> All right, so who did you have down for your best performance? 
Uh, actually, I really, uh, I have it split. I have it both between Lee Marvin and John Cassiavetes. I couldn't make up my mind. I guess if you made me and put a gun to my head, I'd have to go with Lee Marvin. Just because Lee Marvin could have just played this part like a dick. And he decided to undersell it only and and be at the dick only when it was necessary. Yeah, but I I think there's a little bit, uh, if I may just slightly disagree, I just feel there's a little blunted behind his um, performance in this. Like the the. I, I've seen him do much better roles once I figured out who he was. But um, I, I don't think he did poorly. It's just I've, I have I didn't think he jumped off in any one particular mo- or method of this movie. However, I will say that um, the way he played it in uh, allowing these guys to come together um, and how it kind of went about um, does give a little bit, like, I don't think that could have been pulled off by just anybody at the time, but you could, I, I could give you a, probably about five other actors, I think, that could have probably pulled this role off and possibly given a little bit better performance. But that's just me. And one of them is not John Wayne. Okay. Like, top of the list is, like, Burt Lancaster. Mm. Maybe. So, anyway. And the only reason I uh, would... Uh, where I had Cassavetes down, actually, for my mess, best minor performance is that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Because I think he, by far, gave the best performance of the film. He didn't do a very good job, and I would have probably agree with you on the Best Minor performance, although I would also point out if it wouldn't have been Cassavetes I would have probably given it to Richard Jekyll just because I just love the guy's acting so I actually went for my best performance with Charles Bronson and it's just because he seems to be magnetic in almost every movie I've seen with him whether it's The Great Escape or The Magnificent Seven or any of these like um, leading roles and he just always seems to be in the center of action this understated tough guy um, but that carries a lot of scenes that maybe he doesn't or isn't supposed to, but just seems to gravitate toward. Yeah. So uh, I already gave my best minor performance. Who did you have for yours? I was agreeing with you and said Cassiavetes, but um, if it wouldn't be for him, I would have given it to Richard Jekyll. Well, let's just, you know, just for the sake of throwing one out there, um, Let's just put Richard Jekyll on your list so that we have a little bit of, you know, um, variety. But uh, most charismatic? Uh, Telly Savalas. For most charismatic? Yes. He's every the time... most psychopathic. I know. But every time he was on screen, you were drawn to him. And oh, he had... he's just so sadistic. But he he was a very charismatic person in general. And in fact, you don't you're way too young to remember. He was on network TV in a TV show where he played a New York City detective called Kojak. And Kojak was oh, such he was Kojak? A, yes. Kojak was such a hit. And yes, it was all Telly Savalas. And Telly just, Savalas was as big a television star as there was from about 1971 to about 1977. And he was like one of these most significant sex symbols in Hollywood at that time. He was rivaling uh, rivalry with Burt Reynolds for sexiest man alive type of thing. That's how he was much- a sexiest man. I don't know if he ever got it, but he was huge. He had women fawning all over him. I can understand Burt Reynolds. I cannot understand Kojak being a sex symbol. Oh, he was. He was huge, huge sex symbol. He had more women. Um, He never married because he had girls coming in and out of his place constantly. 
I mean, he just he lived in uh, a universal lot in uh, Universal City in Hollywood. And then he had a place in Vegas and he'd spend time in both places. So it was not uncommon for him to end up with two showgirls in Vegas and a bunch of young actresses in, in the Universal lot. In fact, mm-hmm. the uh, the bar that's on the Universal lot is named Telly's because he was there so much. They just named it after him. Oh, that does make sense. But he just had a he had some knack about him that people were just mesmerized by him. He had a he had a toughness about him um, and a no nonsense that, you know, it's one of these. He was like the bad boy that girls loved. Mm. Ernst Stavro Blofeld. That's okay. why he, was, he he had the he was he had the side here up until he played Blofeld. So when he did Blofeld, he had to shave his head. and uh, He shaved his head in this movie. Yes, but at, he, he did not shave it until he did Blofeld. And then, Blofeld, he, his performance was 69. This is 67. <sighs> so your a, time's off. There was a film that he did. He had to shave his head. Oh, no, no, no. He shaved his head because he was playing... Um, uh, Pontius Pilate in the greatest story ever told. Oh, so he God. had to shave his he had to shave his head to play the part, and he liked the way it looked. So he kept his head shaved the rest of his life. Okay, and that's really where the first time it became prevalent for guys who were going bald to just go or you know instead of having the the little the side back you know where you're bald all up on top type of deal, but um. He was really one of the first to to go completely bald and it being a big deal and being considered sexier. Okay. I truly am surprised by that, but uh, sure. By the way, for since I didn't give the reference point, Ernst Stavro Blofeld is the um, classic uh, Spectre villain from the James Bond film franchise. And the books before that. Just, you know, for reading it. So, all right. That takes us to best scene. So, here are my nominees. The um, celebration party. With uh, him bringing all the women into camp. And the the awkwardness of all of these, like, criminals and sex convicts and all of this other stuff. um, Being afraid to talk to a bunch of prostitutes. Okay. Okay. Um, raiding Colonel Breed's division, uh, basically them winning the war games, and um, uh, who was it? Uh, Ernest Borgnine's general character, basically being in on it and seeing what was going on before it happened. Yeah. The the ending sequence in the chateau. Um, meeting Franco for the first time because I think that that whole piece of Cassiavetti's really setting the tone of who these guys are and the defiance and um, you know the hard nature that they're going to meet for Lee Marvin's um, uh, uh, Major Reisman uh, character going against you know these convicts um, that uh, that plays a kind of a pivotal scene and kind of setting the tone but um, his his nature of picking that out and um really kind of setting up the basically the first two thirds of the movie. Um, Pinkley played by Donald Sutherland plays general to get one over on Colonel breed. And finally, uh, those are the two guys who beat up Vodislaw. Because that's the scene where it seems like the guys are all starting to come together. Yeah, and they really start to like uh, respond in a particular way. So, uh, did you have any others that you would want to um, add to that list? No, no, not really. Okay, which one did you pick? I love the whole uh, raiding uh, the war games, the raiding of Colonel Breed's headquarters. Yeah, honestly, I think that's probably the most fun scene in the movie. Um, I think there are several important scenes for setting things up. 
But I think that one, um, and I had that one selected for my favorite scene. So, yeah. um, but I, I think it's both the most fun and probably where this movie kind of works the most. Um, yeah. Did you have a different favorite scene or um, no, anything else? Okay, that is my favorite scene. Um, I just think it works so well because you're you're getting all of these guys that are going against the rules and they're getting one up on the guys that are trying to undermine them and it works better than the ending sequence where it's a little bit more tragic yeah. um this is probably the mo most fun part of it so um all right uh what did you have for your most indelible moment well i um I'd have to say probably the ending because that's always the part that can I, can I narrow that even on you just in you talking about it. It's Jim Brown dying. Well, yeah, I guess for me it is because I, I, I kind of referenced that while we were watching it. I said, made a comment about how I was kind of upset the way it ended because of course, you know, I'm rooting for Jim Brown to, to, to live and, you know, and I, I guess part of me still, every time I watch it, wants to hope that somehow another, there's another version. <laughs> so. Uh, to me, the the thing that sticks out the most is, it, so this is the first time I've watched this film. Um, I should have gotten into that earlier, but um, it just kind of, you anticipate a lot of these movies where, you know, most of them, survive or like you know at least half do and out of 14 guys three yeah and they just kind of em ended abruptly where they get a congratulations and a pat on the back but that's basically it yeah you know and some of them and thinking back on it there's uh, some of them that died you don't you barely remember the, how they died you know, like Clint so, Walker, who was the, played the uh, uh, Native American that was just a huge guy. I mean, he was just one mass of men. I can't tell you how, I can't remember yet how he died. I know he did, but I don't remember how. I think he was one of the two guys that got gunned down in the boat. Okay. And I know, like, Samson and another guy got um, gunned down in the uh, machine gun nest um, as they were trying to hold the uh, fort from, like, them calling in reserves. Uh, Donald Sutherland got gunned down um, or just outside in the courtyard in the car. And yeah. um, the um, Latino guy got or died, like, parachuting. He didn't even make it to the the full final thing. So well, that was, that, that was the way it really was. It was like about, I think, you know, in the early days of, uh, uh, airborne divisions, it was pretty close to one out of 10, one out of 20 guys died in the fall in the jump. I thought it was more than that, but, um, might've okay. been, but I mean, there were a lot of people, guys who got hung up in trees because those old, those were early parachutes, and they didn't this have is... the ability to steer them the way they do the modern ones. And sure. so you you just come down wherever it was. You didn't have any choice. And so it was not uncommon to get hung up in a tree. And even if you didn't die in the fall, you know, you'd be an open target. <laughs> the Germans or whoever would see you land could just go and shoot you while you're in the tree. Sure. And I, I know I, I remember listening to your, like, audio version of uh, Stephen Ambrose's D-Day at one point and that being kind of the, the situation. But, you you know, you'd think this movie is not based on a real story. It's just based on a book. And that, you that like, the Hollywood version, at least he'd survive long enough so that you actually see his uh, death on screen. Not just like a throwaway line where he's at least in notable and recognizable for the first like four fifths of the film, and then oh okay, well he didn't uh, survive the jump. What what the hell is that? 
Well, but like that's made never done. Why everybody had to cross train for everybody else's job? Yeah, I understand, and it did come back around, but still, it just. Um, and didn't Cassiavetti's like die in the car in the end? Like somebody shot him as he's as they're leaving. Yeah. Yes, and he's like, "We're gonna make it. We're gonna make it." And then he gets shot and he dies. Okay, I was trying to remember all of that. So, all right. Um, then uh, you want to take a break there for our uh, before we get into best lines. Sure. All right, we're just going to break quickly for a uh, quick word from our sponsors then. And we're back. So uh, where we left off is uh, for best lines. Um I have a few nominees. Um, this one isn't as big because a lot of it happens to be more action than uh, a lot of the dialogue. But um, all right. So first one, Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. What's your name, soldier? Vernon Pinkley. Number two, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, Vodislav. Killing generals could get to be a habit with me. Yeah. Uh, Major Reisman. Which one of you guys wants to be a general? Pinkley? Pinkley. What kind of general, sir? Major Reisman. Just a plain, ordinary, everyday, home-loving American general. I'd rather be a civilian, sir. Yeah. Um, and kill any officer in sight. Ours or theirs? Yeah. Uh, you've seen a general inspecting troops before, haven't you? Just watch or walk slow, act dumb, and look stupid. Uh, do you have any others that you would like to nominate? Um, No, I mean, there are certain lines, but I don't know if they're really that memorable. I mean, the, you know, where Cassiavetti's jumps Lee Marvin and, and, uh, he beats the crap out of him and he turns to Richard Jekyll and said, uh, Sergeant, what did you see? He goes, the prisoner attacking the major. He was just defending himself. Yeah. I always loved that one. Okay. Uh, what did you have down as your best line then? Um, I still like the uh, I could get or uh, I could get used to killing generals. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna go with the um, and kill any officer in sight. Ours or theirs, because it just seems to fit the entire um, piece of the movie. Yeah. I'm going to give honorable mention to um, number two. But uh, did you have any other of those that you wanted to give an honorable mention? Um, no, not offhand. Okay. And I will give funniest line to, you've seen a general inspecting troops before, haven't you? Just walk slow, act dumb, and look stupid. Fits. All right, so we get to the grading. Uh, what did you have down for legacy? Uh, I had this down as a nine. A nine? Yeah, because this is really the first real anti-hero movie that was huge that was a box office setter because this led to a, another film a few years later with uh clint eastwood called kelly's heroes and it started in the dirty harry films and everything this started a genre of film boy i can't i can't put it there i i just can't i went with the six um this okay. movie is very rarely talked about 
Uh, other than my grandmother actually sitting down the other night and saying, oh, I love this movie, which is weird uh, given its content and some of the characters that are in it and how, like, opposed to controversy she is. Um, like, this is not one of those that's, like, off the tip of the tongue for, like, war films. It's just not. Like, I, I very rarely heard about this other than you talking about it. Uh, I don't think it has a footpath. Um, this isn't like part of the normal conversation. It's not talked about in the way that you're, um, referring to it. And, um, like there is a moniker of, um, the anti-hero or the establishment or like, uh, all of these, uh, commandos kind of like coming together that are not necessarily the good guys. But I, I think you could say like the team up film, even before this, you're talking something like the Magnificent Seven, who are all kind of like, you know, gunslingers and outlaws that um, I think has a lot bigger impact and is a lot more talked about movie. So I, I'm sorry, I just went with a six. I, I can't. I stick with my number. That's fine. So we have to average that one out. Uh, what did you have for significance impact? Um. The fact that it became a little, there were so many films that followed it. I still would give it a bigger one, but um, it hasn't had the afterlife um, that some of the other films have because it didn't strike a cultural note. Um, so I'm going to give that an eight. Okay. So I moved mine up from where I originally had it to a five, but Part of that is it's somewhere lost between kind of my legacy and impact aspect of this. Um, the There would not be a comic book version of The Suicide Squad without this movie. The Suicide Squad is essentially this movie, but with comic book character villains. Yeah. And you, you've gotten this story in a lot of different places um, spread out, but it's it's not quite the same thing. And so this does set a template that um, has worked before, or at least has been tried to be copied. But I've never really seen any of them be entirely successful where the characters are completely irredeemable. Like, even even this one tries to redeem Charles Bronson at the end, but, like, all of them have their significant flaws and i i think there are significant flaws to this movie yet um i i wouldn't even put it in like an upper pantheon of certain war films but um so i i gave it a five you had it at an eight yep so that'll put it at a six and a half uh i just i i don't think it has I know that someplace this one is kind of more of like it lives in a certain brain space for you, but I'm I'm looking at it in a much different lens because like this is a movie you grew up with. This movie is the first time I've ever seen it. And, you know, I frankly, I was a little disappointed by the end of it. Mm. So uh, novelty, I gave it a seven um, just because of the concept of what they were working on. But um Again, I don't know if I can give it... Well, I can probably be talked up because... I mean, they are dealing with some pretty severe characters, but they really kind of... They, they don't give you the same rawness at times, other than maybe Telly Savalas, like, going completely berserk in the final scene. Um, like, they gloss over some of these guys' worst flaws, and... Um, you know, they don't treat them as completely deranged. They're all kind of like the bad boy where, um, you know, they're not necessarily wholesome characters, but you kind of like them. If you didn't have the Dirty Dozen, you would not have had Platoon. You would have not had uh, the Deer Hunter. You would have not had... Uh, Why? I think that's, that's a different statement. Because those are so different. No, because this put soldiers 
in a position of showing who they were. They were not the heroic, you know, um, gleaming, uh, polished things that Hollywood put on for war films. Everybody See, I, in these films, war films, was, I mean, there was nobody that was really um, a horrible person or that somebody who committed war crimes or did atrocities. You know, there was a, they divorced a certain element or base element from, of humanity from, from soldiers in war. But, okay, and we still get this, you know, whether it was Band of Brothers or the Pacific or Saving Private Ryan or any World War II movie, those are seen as like, that's the greatest generation and we glorify everything about that one. Whereas the three movies you mentioned are all Vietnam. And I think it's those are more of a product of which war they're talking about and the era that came from them because all of those directors came directly from the 60s and had a, a counterculture aspect. I don't know if this movie had almost anything to do with those other movies. It undermined the, con the convention of what a World War II movie was up to that point, but I don't think it has anything to do with the three movies you mentioned. I think that it is a direct er, impact because Hollywood uh, said that a soldier could be flawed and it would be a box office draw. Okay, I, I just, I, I can't see it, but all right. So what did you have for novelty then? I had an eight and a half. All right, so I had a seven. We can average that out to seven and three quarters. Uh, what did you have down for classicness? It, it's aged a bit. It's not quite as, you know. So I had that yeah. at a 7.5. I mean, it's and a that's, classic. That's the exact classic, number. I, but. That, that's the exact number I had. Um, I don't think there are a ton of elements of this that have aged poorly. Like. We, we do much grittier um, subjects and movies now. And so some of the... Like, if this movie were to be made now, it'd be a much, much different movie. But... Much, and that's why I'm saying... That's why I gave it a seven and a half. It went, it went very far in 1967. Sure. But it sure. didn't go nearly as far as it could have in, and would have in modern times. It didn't yeah, show. Them. All right. I mean, you would have certainly in in a more modern film. I think you would have seen each of the dirty dozen maybe involved in the criminal aspects of their of, of why they're in prison, sure. even by flashback. You know, you would have seen a. a an I think some of the the early parts, or you would have seen something that was that right. made, that set you to the point of why you should dislike this guy. Yeah, I don't think this would be such a likable movie by the end of it. It would be much more of a redemption movie. Um, I think it could be filmed much closer to um, a even grittier version of, like, Shawshank. Yeah. So, um, all right. Uh, what did you have down for rewatchability? Um... Well, I had this down as an eight because this is a film when it's on, I watch it. So, um, but I mean, I still have to have some semblance of, you know, being in the right frame of mind. If I've had a really bad day and I see this on, I'm not turning it on because it's just a little too much uh, realism for, uh, you know, when I'm having, when I need just relax and devoid of any reality. Uh, so, so I spaced there for a second. What did you say was your score? Um, I don't know if I said it. I, I had down that it was a, about a seven and a half. Yeah, I had it down as a five. Like, this isn't one of those, like, rah-rah war films that I enjoyed watching um, as much. It, which seems contrary to the way that like you and my grandparents were watching it the other day 
like you had a certain um i don't know like um draw to it that i i just never got so i had it down as a five um but you know i, I mean i think you guys related to this as a product of your era in a much different way than i did just simply put yeah i i i, I agree and and I had seven and a half or eight, and um, I, I, I'll go down to the seven and a half. Okay. So that'll put it at a six and a quarter for the final average. And then we'll add in the audience score of 90% uh, for a total of 44.5, which puts it um, just under North by Northwest and ahead of Silver Linings Playbook for number 10 on our current running list. Okay. Which, given where some of these movies are, I can buy that. Yeah. So, all right. Um, then that puts us at... Uh, did you have any remaining questions after the movie? Um, I would have liked to have known what ended up happening to charles bronson's character they did a sequel by sure and i've yes, never seen I did. the sequel yeah i saw that there were certain and oddly enough like telly savalas is like the leading character in that which doesn't make any sense because he died i know yeah i i thought it was weird but um i, I think it's a different people. character but yeah, I know, you know Richard Jekyll was in the remake, and I can't remember if Lee Marvin was. Okay. I don't think Charles Bronson was, because I think that the remake or the sequel was more of a TV made-for-TV movie. And so um, Charles Bronson, by that time, was commanding high dollars for making what was in the 1970s the version of what is now Fast and Furious, the Death Wish movies. Oh, Okay. They, he made a whole series of these uh, uh, movies where he was a vigilante and he would just blow people away, usually bad guys. And he would just take <laughs> justice in his own hands and, and just kill people. And, you know, and they okay. made a ton of money because every, you know, every, you know, 16 to 20 or 28 year old guy went to see the Death Wish films because it was just just absolutely senseless violence and just to the point where it was laughable it was so violent okay then and he made a lot of money so by the way do you know who uh, charles bronson was married to um no jill ireland who was a big sex symbol in the 60s and i think she was a bond girl at one time one of them okay so uh, not that I'm aware of, but well, I'd have to look it up. But Jill Ireland and he were married for in Hollywood terms. That was a marriage that was like forever. It was like 25 years. They were like married, I think, until he died. Okay. Um, so that's a lot longer than most make it anymore. So uh, before we go, um, will you I think. um I'm just going to run down the, the 15. Um, we're going to be doing a specialty episode when we get to 25 here. But um, number 15 on the list is Inglorious Bastards. Number 14, In the Heat of the Night. 13, Rocky. Uh, 12, Big. 11, Silver Linings Playbook. 10, The Dirty Dozen. 9, North by Northwest. 8, Slundog Millionaire. 7, Goodfellas. 6, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Five, Taxi Driver. Four, Apocalypse Now. Three, Some Like It Hot. Two, Groundhog Day. And number one, Pulp Fiction. So, um, it's yeah, been... Jill Ireland, they were married um, from 1962 after she divorced um, uh, another actor that we just happened to see, or, uh, David McCollum. Who a uh, British actor who was in uh, I Spy, or not I Spy? Um, what was the name of the? Um, they did a remake, a film of it. Um, 
with um I have no idea, and this is... Hammer. Anyway, but um, she died of cancer at age 54, breast cancer, and then he remained, uh, did not remarry, and then he died of uh, um, lung cancer and Alzheimer's at age mm-hmm. 81. So... Why? But Jill Ireland, let me just find it here. Um, she... <laughs> uh, how much farther are you going to take this one? That was the film. Uh, or that was the TV show. And she did several films. She was in The Greatest... Or they met while she was he was filming The Great Escape, and David McCollum was in the film. So yeah. Charles Bronson stole David McCollum's wife while they were filming. Okay, then. So. Wow. Is that going to be... For the, one of the action stars of his day... Yeah, I assume that that um, um, uh, we're going to do that film at some point too. Which one? The Great Escape. Oh, most definitely. Because in fact, I had originally offered that one in this spot for you, and you had chosen this one instead. So, but um, this being the Memorial Day week episode, it kind of fits all of this. So, I gave you a couple of different options for next week. Uh, which one did you want to do? Well, you, you suggested that we do uh, the best years of our lives, and since uh, that's one of the stars of that film is Dana Andrews. and namesake. Yes, and the other is Frederick March, who is from or who has ties to Wisconsin. Um, I'm picking that film. All right, so um, I think that's a good place to cut it for that. Um, I wish we could talk longer, but... I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Oh, shoot. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, Please um, rate, subscribe, and review. Um, You leave us a four or five star rating and uh, let us know about it or send us a screenshot to... Um, either one of our uh, emails, uh, tj3duncan at gmail or dot duncan at gmail.com. Um, you can either contact me there or the uh, website, my personal blog that uh, I use to accompany the show. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at tj3duncan or um, where can they find you? A Civil War History 63 at gmail.com or I'm on Twitter at Dana W. Duncan at twitter.com. Okay. Uh, but if you leave us a four or five star review and let us know, um, you can be a uh, guest host on an upcoming episode with us and you can pick the movie. So, um, you know, either a revisit or one that uh, you want to suggest. I mean, I think I had a running list before we started this of somewhere between 400 and 500 movies that we were going to cover. So uh, it's going to take a while. We've only got 15 down, and I think we've we've got a ways to go. But we're hopefully planning to have 50 episodes here per year. Um, so uh, please uh, rate, subscribe, review. Um, if you can subscribe, hit the follow button um, wherever you're getting your podcast uh, to get the regular episodes per week. Uh, Otherwise, have a great one, folks. Uh, We'll talk to you next week discussing the best years of our lives, the um, coming home film that uh, still has a lot of resonance. So take care.